0: Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. I must confess that as I went through this week, after last weekend's sermon in Titus 2, and after we looked together at our need to look both to Christ's past grace In the gospel and to his coming glory in his return I didn't do very well this week with that. It was hard Because my mind is still consumed with all of the things going on right now all that's coming It seems so strong especially on the eve of the election and the real possibility that Our wondering and our fretting won't be done on Tuesday, but we'll go on for weeks or possibly even months my heart is heavy and my mind has been distracted and as i look around at the state of our nation i'm worried i'm concerned i see so much so much raging against the lord so much rejection of god's word and his ways even among his people see so much potential for a future that's very hard for God's people. And as I contemplated where to go in this text, because it seemed wise to me in light of the election, and it seemed wise to Charlie as well, for us to take a little bit of time away from Titus and to address directly where we're at right now as a country, what's going on right now, how we as Christians should think Christianly about this season, As I was thinking about where to go, the text that was most on my heart is Psalm 2. And it seems fitting because it's a text that the early church turns to often for comfort. We see this in Acts 4 when the early church is being persecuted and God's people are being gathered together and beaten because they preach the gospel. The apostles are taken captive by the Pharisees and beaten and told not to preach the gospel anymore. And they go home rejoicing that they were kind of worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And then what does the church do? They pray. And what do they pray? They pray Psalm 2. They pray in light of what they see in the Psalms. About the reality of nations raging against the Lord and against his anointed. And how God responds. And so it seems good and fitting for us. And I think it will be helpful as we have a country that is in many ways raging against the Lord, to see what the reality is in Psalm 2, see what's really going on. So my, my aim in this sermon then is to help us look at that, to kind of peel back a little bit all the noise and to say, what's really going on? My aim is not to tell you how to vote, because I think many of you have probably already voted too. <laughs> My goal is to help us think through how should we vote in light of who God is and what God is doing. And if you have voted already or when you do vote, Lord willing, how to respond to the results and how to think about this time as a church body. So that's, that's my goal. That's my desire that I think will, reading through Psalm 2 and thinking about it for this brief time will help us. So let's read Psalm 2 Read along with me here in Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be warned. Be wise, excuse me. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We see here first in Psalm 2, we're going to cover this in four parts. We're going to see first what the nations do, and then we're going to see, secondly, how God responds. And then we're going to see, thirdly, what the Son does. And then we're going to see, fourthly, what the wise do. So let's look at that now. Verses 1 to 3, what do the nations do? The nations, it says in verse 1, rage, right? Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. This is both a question, like why, but it's also a little bit rhetorical. Why, as in why do they do this when it's so futile? Why would the nations rage against God, the rightful ruler? The nations rage... Because they reject God's rule, right? That's what verse 3 is saying. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the nations do not want God to rule over them. So they say, let us burst our bonds apart. This is for the nation's deliberate rebellion. Notice the nations together are taking counsel. Against the Lord and against his anointed. This isn't just the nations bucking against something they don't know what's going on. This is deliberately the nations and rulers of the nation on the earth, kings, presidents, dictators, etc., and those in their nations, those that make up their peoples, saying, We do not want God to rule. We want to rule ourselves. It's a desire for autonomy that is deliberate and rebellious. Ultimately, what these nations are doing, these kings are doing, is they're rejecting God's rule through his word. The psalmist is actually drawing a contrast here between what these rulers and nations are doing in what he says plotting in vain, verse 1 the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain that's the same word that the psalmist uses in psalm 1 verse 2 the person who delights in the law of the lord what does he do he meditates on it day and night those are the same words so the, this, the, the person who loves god loves his commands loves his word and is blessed according to psalm 1 is like a tree planted by streams of water, meditates on the law of the Lord, meditates on His commands, loves His rule. And what do the nations and the kings who rage against His rule do? They plot. Instead of meditating on His word, they meditate on their own schemes to try to reject God's rule. This is no new thing, right? This has been going on since the foundation, since the creation, I should say of Adam and Eve, right? Back in the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? They rejected God's rule and God's authority. Genesis 3, 4 to 5, when the serpent is tempting Adam and Eve, what does he tell them? He says this, Genesis 3, 4 and 5, he contradicts God's word. The serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you will not surely die. And then he holds out the promise of autonomy, the promise of self-rule. What does he say in verse 5? He says, God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This rejection of authority, this raging of the nations and the kings is ultimately about wanting to define good and evil for themselves. That's what it means to want our own autonomy, to reject the rule of God, is to say we want to define what is good and what is evil for us. We want to know good and evil like God does and be like God in defining it for ourselves. Since the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent have been in conflict. And all those who are under the first Adam, as Paul puts it in Romans, all of those who are from the seed of the serpent will always desire their own self-rule, will always reject the rule of God. They will always rage against the Lord and against His anointed. Kings and presidents, dictators, representatives, senators, rulers, and members of the nation, citizens of the nation will do this. What this means for us, what this shows us, is that politics is never neutral. There's no such thing as separating religion from politics. Here's why. Stick with me on this. Jonathan Lehman, in his book, How the Nation's Rage, says this. He says, a nation's public square, or politics, is where a citizenry wages war on behalf of their gods. See, gods tell us what is good and what is evil. Gods define for us our worship. And we all, because we were created to worship And serve the God. We all will serve some God. And because we all serve some God. Our desires and our worship. Is fitted around that God. And that informs our politics. What we do in the public square. The choices we make. And what we advocate for. Comes from the gods that we worship. That's what Jonathan Lehman is saying. And I agree with him. And that's what we see here. The nation's rage. The people's plot in vain. The king's want to remove the bonds of the lord from ruling over them that's politics and what they want to do is they want to be their own gods or they want to serve the gods of the nation here's how this works think about abortion for a second behind the desire for women to be free to have abortions are gods it's the god of personal autonomy No one can tell me what I can or can't do with my body. It's the God of pleasure without consequences. I want to be free to have sex with whoever I want and not have consequences, a.k.a. sometimes pregnancy. It's also a God of self-fulfillment. Right now, I'm not in a really good spot with my career and it's not the right time to have a kid. It's also a God of... Of provision, I'm fearful that I won't be able to provide for this baby. Or a God of reputation, I'm fearful for what will happen to my reputation if people see me pregnant out of wedlock. There's all, that's an oversimplification. I realize there's lots of reasons, different reasons that women seek abortions. But what I want you to see is that underneath the desire for women to be able to seek abortions are God's. And what that means is politics and religion are not separate. It's not lack of any kind of moral significance or any kind of religious significance to our vote. You can't remove your politics from, or you can't remove, excuse me, your religion from your politics. Okay? What that means is then, is it's possible for us to rage against the Lord and against his anointed by how we vote. Here's what I mean by that. There are some ways to vote that are clearly sinful. If you vote with a desire to promote transgenderism and the acceptance of gender fluidity and non-binary and all of those things that come in that package, if you say, this candidate supports this, and Biden clearly does, he says... 8 year olds should be able to choose to trans- transition their gender. If you vote because for Biden because you like that and you think that's good, you are voting for sin and you are raging against the Lord and against his anointed. Likewise, if you vote for Trump because you believe he supports white supremacy and you like that fact, And you believe that it's good that whites should stay on top and all other races should be discriminated against and repressed. If that's why you vote for Trump, you are voting for evil and raging against the Lord and against his anointed. There are ways that are clearly sinful to vote because all of politics is informed by what our gods are. And if you have gods in your heart... Both transgenderism and white supremacy reject the image of Creator God in individuals. And if that's what's in your heart, then you're raging against the Lord and against His anointed. Don't do that. First of all, we see that. That it's possible to rage against the Lord and against His anointed by how we vote. Because politics is never neutral. But that's not all we see in here. The challenge we see is that this raging... We might, Most of us, I imagine, are not going to vote for Biden because we're in support of transgenderism, and we're not going to vote for Trump because we love white supremacy. I think most of us, I hope, that's not you. But we see these options, and we say, man, there's so much raging against the Lord, I don't know what to do. And we fret because the raging seems mighty. I want to call to our memory, though, the raging of the nations against the Lord's anointed in the Old Testament. Remember, in Second Kings, just a little bit after what we read, Assyria is coming against Judah, actually by the hand of the Lord. And the general from Assyria comes to Jerusalem, and God's people are in Jerusalem, behind the walls of Jerusalem, and he is making some bold claims about God's inability to rescue his people. And the leaders of Jerusalem are even asking this general to speak in a different language so that the people guarding the wall don't hear him taunting God. And he says, I'm going to taunt him in front of everybody. It seems mighty, and it seems scary, and it was. The danger was real, but in another way, the people of Israel remained silent because they had been told by Hezekiah that they needed to trust the Lord their God. And so they did and we can too, even though the raging seems mighty because of how God responds to the raging in verse four Look what he says in verses four to six He who sits in the heavens Laughs the Lord holds them in derision Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me I've set my king on zion my holy hill God laughs Because the raging of the nations is futile. This is not God dismissing the raging and saying, you know what, good try, it's no big deal, you don't need to worry about it. No, God is furious, God is wrathful about the raging of the nations and the raging of kings. This is also not God saying, you know what, my people, you don't need to worry about this, your sorrow is, you shouldn't be sad about raging of the nations. You shouldn't be sad when people reject my rule and authority. This is not God minimizing the pain and the hurt that comes from it. This is God laughing mockingly, holding them in derision because of how silly it is that these nations and these kings would rage against him. Because notice, all God has to do is speak and he terrifies them. These nations are not as mighty as they seem. It's even by just the very word and breath of God. Verse 5, He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. That's all it takes for God to set these nations back because they are powerless against His rule and His reign. They cannot stop the Lord God. God's response to them in verse 6 is this. He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice, this is past tense. God has already done this. These nations, these rulers are scheming together to figure out how to cast off the bonds of the Lord's rule. And what does he say? I've already set my king on Zion. There's nothing you can do about it. It is too late. This rage is futile because the Lord has already done this. This means then if God has already set his king of kings his lord of lords on zion his holy hill all rule all politics all nations All kings are already under the rule Of the lord's king set on zion All earthly politics then is sub rule god establishes earthly governments. We see in romans 13 Right, The hand of the king, or excuse me, the the heart of the king is like water in the hands of the Lord. We see in Proverbs 21. We see in Exodus how God deals with Pharaoh in hardening his heart as he wills. The kings of the earth are powerless to stand against God because God doesn't rule by consent. Right? We are a nation governed by consent of the people. That's not how God works. God doesn't ask us to write a constitution and go uh, to, 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 he's bound by that. He rules, but he also doesn't rule just by sheer force. He's not a bully and a dictator. He rules by the factor that he himself is creator, right? He is sovereign Lord and creator, and that is why he rules. And there's nothing the kings of the earth can do about it because they were all created by him. There's nothing the nations can do about it because we are all risen or fallen because of God's sovereign plan and will. We cannot reject and rebel against his authority. So he laughs because our raging is futile. I think what this shows us, what this teaches us in how we need to respond as we look around and see raging of the nations. We need to ask ourselves ourselves. Does the raging of the nations and the raging of kings worry us more than it worries God? Do we have that same perspective that God does? When we don't, when we forget that God is sovereign or act like he is not, that's when we end up terrified. That's when we end up despairing. What will our response after this election be? Will it show, verse 6, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Will it show that we believe that's true? Or will we fret and worry over the results in such a way that will cause people to question whether we really believe that? When we trust in the Lord, when we see that He has already set His king on Zion, and He rules, and therefore nothing happens that is outside of His rule, when we see that, we can be like the Proverbs 31 woman who laughs at the days to come because she trusts the Lord and fears His name. God laughs because God rules and there's nothing the nations can do about it. We see, though, in the next section how God rules. Look with me at verses 7-9. to We see this. I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Notice the Lord set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And what does his king say? He says, You you said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Lord rules through his anointed one, his king, His son. We know from the New Testament that that king, that son, that anointed one is Jesus. Right? That's what the Messiah means, the anointed one. Jesus Christ himself is how God rules. What I want you, us, to to, to think about and to know about that is that the path to ruling for Jesus was an unexpected path. I want us to turn to Acts chapter 4 briefly and look at that. What God's people say about the rule of God's anointed son. Acts chapter 4 verse 23 to 28 says this. When they were released, this is the apostles who were beaten, They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said this. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Here's Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, here's their understanding of what that means. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you had anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They pray this prayer, and what do they say about the Gentiles raging and the peoples plotting in vain and the kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord? They say this happened when Jerusalem set itself against Jesus Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and Jews in Jerusalem calling for the crucifixion of Christ and they said this happened they did verse 28 whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place in other words they did this according to God your plan God's way of setting his king on Zion his holy hill was through the cross the path for Jesus to the throne was an unexpected one, right? That's where we see confusion in the Gospels. As the people of God are looking for this Messiah ruler to come and to insti- institute the kingdom of God and Jesus shows them over and over, no, it's through suffering that this will happen. It's through the cross that this will happen. The way of the cross Is the way to the throne and at the cross The rage of the nations Looked like it had succeeded didn't it when jesus was hanging on the cross Psalm 2 did not seem a comfort To his disciples It seemed instead like a prophecy that was fulfilled The nations have raged and the kings have set themselves against the lord's anointed and have killed him It was unexpected, and yet it was part of God's plan to set his king on Zion. What this shows us, what this teaches us, is that God's plan to accomplish his purposes often looks different than we expect it to look. It may even look like defeat at times. Certain things in God's plan of redemption look like defeat. And so, we must not be surprised or dismayed when God acts differently than we want or expect. In other words, if the results of this election are not what you think God should have done, don't be dismayed. It doesn't mean that the nations have succeeded and they're raging against the Lord and against his anointed and overthrowing him. Instead, it means God is doing something different than you expect. We don't know what God's plan is with any particular election result. We don't know what God's particular plan is with any particular circumstance, but we know the whole picture. We know God's plan to redeem his people. We know God's plan is setting his king on Zion, his holy hill, and extending his rule throughout the earth. We know that God has promised his king to make the nations his heritage, and the ends of the earth his possession, and God has promised to do that through his church, through his people. Acts 1.8, going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth extending the rule of christ we know this is god's plan to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it but that doesn't mean that particular circumstances might seem like the gates of hell are prevailing against it so we must hold to this truth this reality and not be dismayed when what we see around us looks differently than we expect the response to all of this, how we are supposed to respond in light of these truths is in verses 10 to 12 of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all. Who take refuge in him. The wise seek refuge in the sun. That's what this is saying. It's wise. Be wise, O O kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. It's wise to seek refuge in the sun. Because blessed are all who take refuge in him. In order to take refuge in the sun, though, we have to stop raging. You cannot rage against the Lord and against His anointed and at the same time take refuge in the Son. These are mutually exclusive. The problem for us that this reveals is that we all rage against the Lord and against His anointed. This is not just kings and nations. This is you and I. We do it in several ways. We might be although I've said I don't think most of us probably are, just directly disobedient. We might directly embrace evil. That's clearly what the kings of the earth were doing. And that's clearly what some in our society even do today. Clearly loving evil and calling evil good. That's one way to rage against the Lord and against his anointed, but that's not the only way. See, what can happen to us is as we see God's sovereign arranging of history, we can reject it. We can rebel against it. This is like Peter, when Jesus told him that he was going to the cross, and Peter rebuked him for it, and said, No, no, that's, that's not what you're doing. And what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. Peter, in his rejection of God's sovereign arranging of history, was raging against the Lord and against his anointed. He didn't know it, he wasn't trying to, but he was. If we reject or rebel against God's arranging of history through governments because we simply do not like them, then we too are raging against the Lord and against his anointed because God himself put them there. That's not the only way though. If we seek refuge anywhere apart from Christ Jesus, we are, by implication, then raging against the Lord and against his anointed. Because where we seek refuge reveals our gods. We take refuge in what we believe will meet our needs. And gods are ultimately what we think will meet our needs, what we think will satisfy So if we take refuge somewhere else than Christ, we will be raging against the Lord and against His anointed. This is a danger for us in a season of politics because we can easily start to take refuge not in God, but in a political party. We can start to put our hopes in the future for a particular party or a particular politician winning the day or gaining the majority or being set in a position of authority. We can put all of our hope in that in such a way that we're not taking refuge in Christ. It's a subtle distinction, but it happens to us as Christians. However, I think the one we're most in danger of is this last way of raging against the Lord and against His anointed. We rage against the Lord and against His anointed when we rage against those who take refuge in Christ. Is what I mean by that. There is a strong possibility for us, a strong danger for us, that after the election, we will look at others in the church and we will say, God, how could you call them beloved? They voted for this person. Because we will have differences in how we vote in this congregation and in the church community at large. And we will be tempted to say, Voting this way is the righteous way, taking refuge in Christ. And voting this way is clearly against God and His Word. With the exception of those ways of clearly embracing evil, that is just not the case. When we vote, we try our best to discern the will of the Lord. We pray, we trust the Spirit to inform our consciences, and then we vote in the way that seems best for us. For our country in the way that seems like God is leading to us to and that can differ for Christians or Their understanding of the candidates can lead them to choose not to vote Because there is just no candidate that fits a godly character What happens to us where this danger comes is when we look at that difference and we say God, how could you how could you love them? How could you embrace them when they clearly voted for so-and-so? This is raging against God's people. And when we rage against God's people, it's raging against God himself. This is what Christ revealed to Paul, right? When his name was Saul, and he stopped him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not the church, why are you persecuting me? When you rage against God's people, you rage against Christ himself. We are all going to be in a position where we're tempted to rage against God for one reason or another in these next few weeks, and we must all instead seek refuge in Christ. Raging against God will not go unpunished, right? Be warned, O rulers of the earth, because if the son is angry, you perish in the way because his wrath is quickly kindled. But, Christ himself took on the wrath of God for you and for me so that we can find refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him is not a threat. It's an invitation. It's a promise of grace that if you take refuge in Christ, you do the best you can in this political season, voting where you believe God is informing your conscience. You may be right. You may be wrong. Same thing goes for me. But then afterwards, we take refuge in Christ. We trust in his sacrifice. One commentator put it this way, there's no refuge from Christ, only refuge in him. That's what we're called to do. That's where we're called to rest. This means that for us, the fundamental division is not between whether you're in the church and you voted Democrat or Republican. It's not between which politician you support, it's between those who rage against the Lord and His anointed and those who take refuge instead in Christ. Those who rage against Christ and those who take refuge in Him is the fundamental division. So friends, as we consider this election, as we go forward, we must remember that this election is a drama meant to display that blessed are all who take refuge in Christ. Politicians will rage God will laugh and do his will. He'll accomplish what he intends. God's people will try to discern God's will and act accordingly and then take refuge in Christ. That's all that's happening right now. So we don't need to despair and we don't need to be bent out of shape and we can be free to consider God's truth and take refuge there. I want to end with what Spurgeon says about all of this. I think is just so beautiful. He says this, God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. Look back through all the ages of infidelity. Hearken to the high and hard things which men have spoken against the most high. Listen to the rolling thunder of earth's volleys against the majesty of heaven. And then think that God is saying all the while, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Consider that and take refuge in that king. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember these things. To remember that you have set your king on Zion and to take refuge in that king. I pray, I do pray, Lord, for wisdom for us. It does not... It's not inconsequential, Lord, what we do and how we vote. And we need great wisdom. But even more than knowing how to vote right now, Lord, we need to see this reality. We need to see that the nations rage and yet you laugh. We need to remember that we are all together taking refuge in Christ. So God, would you help us remember these things? Would you help us especially In the next few weeks, as the results of this election unfold and as our hearts are either elated or crushed, would you help us all to take refuge in your Son? We pray that you would do this. Only you can do it. It's not our natural inclination, Lord. It's not our natural desire. But you, by your Spirit, have given us new desires. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to do these things.